Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is The Knife Perspective, episode number 035, The Book, The Blade, and Everything, The Most Interesting Man Alive. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? Oh, doing pretty good. It's been been an interesting couple of weeks up here, so lots of snow and getting it all unpacked in the house, and glad to... Glad to have some power run out to the garage. So I've got a 60 amps, a 220 out in the, the garage. So the knife grinder will be back to 220 volts here shortly. And I won't have to wa- or uh, see all the lights dim to a dull flicker when I when I hit the start stop button on the, the VFD. Hey, uh, what was that first thing you were talking about? Snow. We have we have about uh, probably about 15 inches or so on the ground right now. What is that? Oh, it's this. This is really fun stuff. Yeah. You uh, you can you can make it into a ball, and then you can hit your wife with it. Oh, it sounds like the devil's dandruff. We had that one time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun. Uh, but yeah, sledding with the boys has been super fun, and it can't get much better for a snow hill or a sledding hill right outside our door. So, uh, that's been super fun. One of the one of the things that I I truly miss is snow days going out with my boys when they were young enough to still think I was cool. You want to hear something sad? Sadder than that I'm not cool anymore? Yeah. yeah. So with all this uh, COVID stuff uh, and now the, the plethora of e-learning, mm-hmm. I, th- I think the snow day is dead. You know, there was a movement in... At least one other state, but in South Carolina, I believe it has been signed into law by the governor that still recognizes snow days as non-learning days. Okay. Uh, for just that reason. There was a, a big concern that children are going to be deprived the pleasure of going out and playing in terrible weather midweek. Hmm. Yeah. So a couple of the places around here have said the first snow day is free. And then after that would be e-learning all the rest of the days. So it is amazing how much snow affects internet connectivity. I bet like 75, 80% of internet connectivity is going to go out with the next snowstorm. (laughs) Could be, but yeah, that's, uh, but I I was pretty, that was one of the things I hadn't even thought of uh, with all this e-learning stuff. Uh, My wife's a teacher, so uh, we've been in the thick of a lot of the e-learning stuff, so that's going to be brutal for her. She's got a face-to-face teach and e-teach all at the same time. Yeah, they they just started doing the hybrid stuff, so I think she's got fifteen kids in class and another ten to twelve on the uh, on the internet that she's trying to make sure they're keeping their cameras on and talking and interacting, and then all the kids that are in class, and of course. 
some of the 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 best behaved kids are the ones all in class and trying to yell at a kid to pay attention do something over the internet doesn't exactly work that greatest i i feel like shock collars are the answer to that <laughs> it's a good thing that you're not uh, work for my will work for years <laughs> secretary of education mm. yeah i put in for it surprisingly enough i did not get the call back <laughs> i can't imagine why it's all politics, uh, man so how how's uh how's the chicken wing uh healing up there over over there dan uh it's good i'm out of the sling um i'm in the shop i'm not quite grinding yet i'm kind of doing some uh some quote unquote work pt all right is that um, is that called like boxing or uh no we're not there yet <laughs> um <laughs> I still carry those scars. I'm uh, doing a little bit of handles. I'm doing a um, a little bit of sanding. Uh, just I, I, there was a lot of atrophy and there's a lot of stiffness in the joint. So I'm just and we're we're not uh, you talking about yet. You can't speak. We're not, not no, talking sorry, about the atro- physical atrophy. <laughs> the mental atrophy is quite obvious. <laughs> um, so it'll probably be another. Th- Three three weeks a month before I'm really doing any significant production. You mean but, you mean three weeks to a month, not three weeks a month. Yes. Well, no. I'm all right. So full disclosure, I'm really I'm gunning for three weeks out of every month, but Beth isn't really on board yet. Okay, so you'll be you'll be working roughly a day a week or something, or that's my goal. I mean, I don't expect to do it all at once. I mean, I'm going to ease into it. Like, I'll, I'll work three days a week for a while, and then then you know bring it back to two days a week because you, you can't do it all at once. It's a little shock to the system. Yeah, but you know, after two months being uh, unemployed as a house husband, I think maybe I have found my true calling. Yeah, it, it turns out goofing off is really my that is my natural God given talent. Yeah, I really liked the two weeks I had off for Christmas, but I ended up spending a lot of that time unpacking boxes and setting yeah. stuff up. So that was poor planning on your part, dude. Yeah, well, uh, you do what you can do. Ugh, I got to buy a bigger house. Oh, it's got to be nicer. I mean, what, what was that? The birds got to swim. The fish has got to fly, or something. Is that what? Isn't that how you say it? One woman till I die. Birds fly, fish got to swim. I got to be me. I get, you. I get you. Uh, all righty. So we got our we got our premium sponsors of today's podcast. We have Old Town Cutlery, and you can find their not or you can find Dan Eastland's uh, Dogwood Custom Knives and Cage Daily Knives all at Old Town Cutlery, as along with a lot of other spectacular knife makers and. Uh, they just recently got a big batch from me that uh, got all photographed and everything. They uh, posted them on Instagram and uh, got a couple sold right off the bat. So uh, go check them out and check out. I know Dan sent some knives uh, before he had surgery down there. So uh, they should have, have quite a few kitchen knives stocked with uh, our knives and, and, and probably some other lesser makers. I mean, if they're sold out of ours, there's there's lots of other options that you can look at. 
And Lee has issued a challenge. If you can misspell Old Town Cutlery and not get to their website, let him know. So uh, uh, make make him give you something so so he can buy up even more domain names so it redirects you to Old Town Cutlery. Um, it's a pretty solid challenge. As a barely literate dyslexic, I have been trying for a while, and I have yet to have not gotten to their website. <laughs> I can I can verify from uh, editing the show notes. And uh, <laughs> got nothing else to do on a Saturday other than correct my spelling and grammar. Uh, and uh, our other sponsor is uh, John Kaufman of Dragonfly Bladeworks. Uh, you can also find his knives at Old Town Cutlery. Uh, I know he sells a bunch of his knives through there. You can he also takes a lot of orders. Um, John's an excellent knife maker and uh, a good friend of the show. He uh, he's listened to every single show, and he said most shows he's listened to twice. So. Uh, he's a glutton for punishment, so uh, make sure you find him and give him some love, too. He's a, a fellow Andy Roy graduate, so we know that he likes discomfort and pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 ex-police officer, I think it think it was, too, yeah. right? Yeah, he was, uh, he was coming PD before he realized that knife making was way cooler. And you can uh, also listen to his podcast. I don't remember what the, the number is offhand, but... Yeah, we did an entire podcast where he dropped a ton of really great knowledge about the dealers from a, from a knife maker side, and he's on the dealer side and the knife maker side. So going back and forth, really good uh, listening to that podcast. So if you haven't checked that one out, definitely go back and check that one out. And Lee was on uh, one of the first one of the first podcasts. So yeah, look in the show notes. Kyle will have uh, pulled that out. Uh, you'll know it's Kyle because it's spelled correctly. But put all that information down in the show notes for you. Yeah. And then, like always, we have the Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives helping to uh, uh, sponsor the podcast, too. So you can so, find Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives at Old Town, like we mentioned. And you can also find Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center, uh, the Knife House, and Cook Station. So definitely check out all those uh, places. They do a lot to help support us, and we want to try to do as much as we can to support them, too. I can't help but to notice that uh, KH Daily Knives comes before Dogwood and the, the sponsors, which suggests to me that I owe you money. So if you'll just um, send me that bill, I'll, 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 I'll gladly pay you on Tuesday. For a hamburger today? Exactly. Yeah. I'm not as, I'm not as young as you think I am sometimes, Dan. You know, you continue to surprise me. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Every once in a while, there's still quite a few times I don't know what you're talking about and just roll with it. Yeah, most people don't, dude. All right. And then uh, for our shout outs and gear talk, uh, we don't really have any gear talk, but we have a couple shout outs. Joe Dees, he he helped contribute to the podcast. He bought a bunch of stickers and then you can also make a donation to the podcast if you enjoy it that much. He's Joseph's Edge Tools on Instagram. He's a real great guy. Makes some really nice knives. And uh, I chatted with him for quite a while going back and forth. He, we were talking a bunch about knife baking. So he's a, he's a great guy. I believe it was in Louisiana. Dan said that. Uh, he was definitely in Louisiana. And we'll get to that in a minute. All right. We'll have some more on him in, uh, in a little bit. Dude, you can't give it all away right up front. You got right. to string it out a little bit. You got to make them sit through till the end of the show. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we got one other shout out, Ben from Iron County Knives. 
Uh, he really brightened my day the other day. He he didn't know it, but uh, got some got some different news at work. So he sent sent me a bunch of stickers and a a patch, a maker patch that uh, I believe was Prometheus Design Works. Super cool patch as like a squid or octopus with holding like a caliper and all sorts of stuff. Super cool patch that they don't make anymore that he he ordered an extra one and sent to me. But really nice note in there and uh, really helped brighten my day. Uh, if you don't haven't followed him, yeah, Iron County Knives on Instagram, definitely check him out and uh, give him a follow. And uh, we've got a new uh, section for the show. New today, but I think it is going to be a, retur- a recurring segment uh guild watch um i really want to thank a lot of y'all uh you've come out and really supported the the new and upcoming south carolina guild uh we'll be having our second meeting on february 27th in st martin south carolina uh in the show notes you will see our website or excuse me our facebook address By the time this airs, my son should have gotten our website built, but definitely check out the Facebook link and the contact information if y'all want to come down. If you are within driving distance, it's an opportunity to be a founding member of the South Carolina Custom Knife Makers Guild. And I was really flattered that as part of of sharing with y'all the process of building this guild, uh, there is now a newly forming uh, Louisiana Guild, and it, like the South Carolina Guild, is going to be built on the Georgia model of a teaching guild. There is contact information for Joe there. Uh, they have not scheduled their first meeting yet, but he's organizing. He's also looking for potential board members and people that can help out as they set up the new guild under kind of the umbrella of this this custom knife makers guild of, as a teaching organization. So anybody in Louisiana, uh, please go down to the show notes, reach out to Joe. We're really looking forward to having y'all as, as part of the custom knife makers guild family. And if you can't make it to the South Carolina guild, but you want to try and be involved uh, because we move these meetings uh, all across the state to try and make it easier for everyone to make a couple of guild meetings, please reach out. Let us know if you have a shop, if you'd like to host a guild meeting, please let us know because we really look forward to working with y'all. Oh, and uh, there's also the Midwest uh, Knife Makers Guild. That's going to be uh, Saturday, April 24th in. All right, Kyle, you got to help me out. Uh, how, did, how do you pronounce that? Mankato, Minnesota. I'm not exactly sure. I'm pretty sure that's the uh, USA Knife Maker uh, shop. Guys, please forgive me. I am a poor old dyslexic redneck. Uh, that is our best attempt at the pronunciation. Yeah. If we've got it wrong, please send that email to Kyle <laughs> at KH Daily Knives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Midwest Midwest Knife Makers Guild started last year. I I joined, but haven't been able to make a make a show or a guild meeting. But they they have a great Facebook page that's pretty active. Uh, just, uh, Hoffman, he, uh, he's one of the, the people in there I know, but yeah, they do, they do a lot of, a lot of questions and answers and lots of funny jokes and stuff. So even if you're not in the Midwest, um, that's, that's a pretty fun group to just, uh, to be in on Facebook. 
All right. So tonight's guest, arguably he needs no introduction, but I love the sound of my own voice. So I'm going to give him one. I am pretty sure, nay, I am certain that everyone that is listening to this right now has heard of this gentleman. But I don't think you know a fraction of how fascinating he is. Um, He was raised by a combination of studious parents and the wilds of Ohio. He is a Cordon Bleu trained chef, was a partner in a record label, was co-author of The Joy of Cooking, has owned a climbing equipment company that produced the first figure eight rings in the U.S., was partner and trainer at a tactical training school. That's pew pew swat kill them kind of things for those that don't know. He started Becker Knife and Tool, was a member of the, a founding member, no less, a founding member of the Chef's Collaborative, which was an early. that's not quite true. uh, You haven't been introduced yet. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that was a cutting edge uh, for the time uh, farm to table concept. He wrote a range of single subject cookbooks is a permanent member of the Knife Rights Board with the prestigious member number of zero, 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 two. He has been places you cannot pronounce. He has done things that you would not understand. He has loved countless women and has known both the crushing failures and unparalleled successes and has enjoyed every moment of it. He is the one the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Ethan Becker. How you doing tonight, Ethan? I wish I could recognize myself in your introduction, but it's difficult. Uh, your publicist, publicist helped me with it. Yes, yes. <clears throat> uh, that's great. Glad you could join us, Ethan. Uh, we've been trying to figure out a way to get you on the show for a long time now. Well, <clears throat> um, I'm glad to be here. It turns out the trick was blackmail. Yeah. One minor incident with some photographic evidence, and he was prepared to become on board. Hush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see if he's still excited to be here at the end of this uh, recording. <laughs> oh, no, he regrets it already, I assure you. <laughs> uh, so one of the one of the questions, uh, Dan kind of alluded a little bit, uh, but we like to start with, where did you grow up, Ethan? I grew up in on the east side of Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. On eight quite lovely acres, um, and it was surrounded by overgrazed woodland pasture and farms. And the overgrazed woodland pasture was where I did a lot of kid camping, and my mom worked from home, and she was uh, uh, writing a cookbook, and she was really always much happier when I was in the woods. Um, So I spent a lot of time there. And enjoyed it a lot. Very cool. So, as you know, we have the Kyle Dan scale. And as a gentleman with such a plethora of experience in marriage and being the most fascinating man alive. Oh, Jesus. I've got to assume you've got at least one good marriage, how I met my wife's story. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, when I was uh, at the court on Bluey, um, I was living in Paris, obviously living in Paris, and one of the gals had, who knew my second wife was staying at the same little pension hotel type 
operation. And um, uh, Joni came up to visit her, and I saw her walking across the courtyard, and I went, whoa, look at that. And um, we uh, spent some time together, and it was springtime in Paris. Mm-hmm. And springtime in Paris is cold and wet and dreary, and so people want to get close to each other. Body heat, it's key. Yeah, yes. get it, getting warm. So anyway, um, when I got home, my mother, my my mother's first question was, "Did you meet any eligible young ladies?" And I said, "Well, mom, if I had it, I met a woman who, if I had any sense, I'd marry." And that ended up happening. Turns out you have some sense. No, <laughs> but. <clears throat> But it was a good marriage. We had with, um, until I was that I've had three marriages. Two of the divorces were not my fault, and one was. And that second marriage was a divorce was my bad. Uh, but we got a wonderful child out of it, and um, we're still pretty close. She's a good lady. You, as we kind of covered briefly, and I, I built it up a little bit, but you you gather no. You gather no moss. You are a very active man that was constantly doing things. How how were you able to to manage your your home commitments and your work commitments? How how were you able to make that work for you? Well, I mean, Becker Knife and Tool was in the garage. <laughs> okay, at the beginning, <clears throat> something many of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with. Good place to start. Yeah, the, um, all the finest companies do. <laughs> um, damn, it wasn't Apple. Anyway. <laughs> not yet. There's still time. Oh, yeah, you're not dead yet. You got time. <laughs> and at the other end of the house was the, um, was the cookbook office. So when my son uh, spent summers with me, he spent uh, – a lot of time bothering the sole employee of Becker Knife and Tool out in the shop and um, generally making himself something of a pest, but he was a good kid. So. Well, he was a kid, so and, that's what they And did. he was, and thankfully, my child did not make my mother's curse on me <laughs> true because she always said to me, may you have a child just like you. <laughs> so, yeah. Now I know why I got a double dose. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, your curse skipped right over and landed on me because I got two kids that I deserve. <laughs> no, you don't. They're good kids. Yeah. Anyway, both of my boys are are eating like crazy right now. We we can't. I don't know if we can make enough food for them some nights. Crazy, crazy appetites. They're growing like crazy. Oh, quaint. Wait till fifteen or sixteen hits, my son. I'm sure. Get him, get him used to eating cornmeal. Yeah, cheap. Yeah, <laughs> it's and cheap and calorie dense. Yeah. It's calorie dense and filling. Yeah, you've heard corn fred country boy for a reason. Yeah, yeah. I always love the joke too. What's the difference between polenta and grits? About six dollars a side. I usually heard it is twenty dollars. <laughs> so that's good i'm glad you're so still so close with your with your son that's great uh what was your first knife growing up do you remember your your first knife or one of your first knives yes and it wasn't a knife but it was an edged tool okay that counts 
at age seven, roughly. I wanted a hatchet really, really bad. And my parents, not knowing any better, gave me one. And it was a plum, just standard kindling hatchet. I guess you call it the all-purpose hatchet. I ran across a picture of me on that birthday staring at that <laughs> at that blade as if it gave milk or perhaps ice cream. The things we were going to do together. Yes. Oh, buddy. Um, if you if you wouldn't mind sending me that picture, I'd love to put that up for the on the knife perspective Instagram page. If you you don't mind, that'd be that'd be super cool. I think for the listeners to see. He said he saw it. Um, <laughs> I know what it is. Oh, do you? All right. I just moved, and I've been going through old pictures and stuff and trying to organize them so my son doesn't have to go through the crap that I did trying to figure <laughs> out who's who. That would be awesome when you yeah. get back. Fair warning, Ethan is in a transitional period and won't be home for a while, but hopefully yeah. he'll get it to us before this goes up. If not, and you're listening to this in uh, in the archives, it's there for you. Feel fortunate. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it up sometime. That's what she, Never mind. <laughs> it's too early in the show for that. <laughs> uh, Dan, Dan, Dan. <laughs> um, so either one you designed, one you made, or other. What's What has been your favorite knife? And this can, can, can be I, over time. Can I separate, the, separate oh, them out? Absolutely. Um, the knife I carried probably for more years than any other knife even after I got in a knife business and was making my own knives, was uh, Puma Hunter's Friend. And I found it to be just about, if I was in the woods, that knife was either on me or in the day pack or in the pack. I had modified it a little bit, but not much. And I know this is cheating, and I don't care. Um, you mean efficiency? Yeah. Um, but... The three knives that if I'm going in the woods and I'm going to be there for a while is my neck knife, uh, my little Becker necker. With the 14? Yeah, I think 13. 13? The 14 is the SE collaboration. And the handle is good, but it's not as good as mine. (laughs) Um, And uh, BK-16, which is uh, the little drop point. Yeah, I've always liked that one. And um, the BK-9, the, the Combat Bowie. And that concept came from a collaboration between Bill Moran and Ken Warner. And um, But it has, I mean, there, you couldn't recognize that. But when uh, Ken Warner was going to, used to be head of NRA publications before he did all the night publications, he was going to Vietnam um, as a correspondent for NRA, and he asked Bill Moran to build him an all-purpose knife, something that could be used as a survival blade, as a utility blade and around the dense vegetation, and also in an emergency, something that he could use to defend himself. And the Warner Moran Bowie, which is uh, a real, uh, I think he called it a real grand Bowie, um, so the concept of about a 10-inch blade, 9, nine to 10-inch blade, uh, that could be used for everything is what I came up with. And I actually had very, very low expectations for that blade. 
but Americans buy Bowie knives. And I was selling recurves, and they were doing okay, but not great. And I thought, well, I loved Bowie knives as a kid. I had a whole bunch of German and English uh, Bowies that I used kid camping. And um, I said, okay. So anyway, the Necker, I originally wanted to call it the Campanion Two, and um, the Nine Inch Bowie. Well, and it's the- now I, I have to say I never if I if I leave my bedroom and I have clo- uh, I have pants on there's a Swiss Army it's the rucksack that has the uh, the addition of the scissors to it I can't remember the name of it. Well, and that's the classic American combination of a delicate knife, a general purpose knife, and a heavy blade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I haven't reached the Argentine uh, six knives uh, to go to the bathroom with. Well, but, you don't you don't ride a horse where you need a, a saber, right? And then you're not dueling where you need the cutting knife, right? This is true. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but, so, what knife is? Would you say is your most used knife? You said you you had your most carried one that I believe you said it was a Puma. Yeah. So the one I carry all the time now is the Necker. That's um, I wear five eleven pants, and there's a necker with a with a little kit on it in my left front cargo pocket as we speak. Okay, and for the listeners that aren't familiar, that that's a three finger kind of neck knife, right? Yeah, three three and a half finger. But some fingers are bigger than others. We don't judge, right? Yes, there we go. <laughs> it's it's sturdy enough that you can pry with it. In an emergency, and I've um, skinned deer with it, and I've split out kindling for small fires. I've taken down four to six inch diameter trees by batoning it uh, through things. It's a heck of a, it's a nice little knife. Not that I have any any prejudices toward it or anything. Yeah, but it's it really is a very universal knife for its size. But what and it'll open a beer when you're when the work's done. For what it's worth, a, a gentleman that has a broad selection of knives at his disposal, the one knife that a maker or a designer carries, that tends to be a very telling story. Yeah. That one's still available, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Then, yes. By it's the a way, very <laughs> virtually, virtually every knife that K-Bar makes is back ordered. A word of warning. But get your orders in soon. So why and or how did you get started in the in knives, the, in the production and the design side? I got started modifying knives when I was about 13. And mom had um, put a lot of the early Gerber uh, steak, uh, she had a steak knife set, and put it in a dishwasher. And back then the dishwasher had, dishwashers were real corrosive and they were higher heat. And um, the chrome came off the handles. And the she produced a lot of blade blanks for you? She did. Gerber made a knife back then, a very delicate little bird and trout knife called a pixie. And basically, the steak knife was an elongated pixie. And Ethan had a Dremel. <laughs> nice. So that's what got it started. But I got into business because I wanted a decent kukri knife. Now, it's not that... Nepalese-made Gurkha knives are bad, because they're not. But 
the ones that were available to me that I started collecting when I was about 16 had little itty bitty tiny handles, and I do not have little itty bitty tiny hands. And to be fair, Gurkhas are not substantial men on the outside. Well, let's just say they are small of stature. Large of heart. Large of heart and have been known to pick up safes and pick, <laughs> put them on their backs and move. They're, I have the utmost respect for them as, pound as for manly, pound. Manly, manly men. Pound for pound, they're phenomenal athletes, but right. they pack all of that into about a five foot three inch right. frame. First time I actually saw a Gurkha soldier, he was guarding the embassy at the and in Bangkok, and he was carrying an FNFAL. And I looked at I looked at the guy, and I thought he looks a lot like my twelve year old uh, who had gotten into the gun safe. If your twelve year old would chew your kneecaps off, uh, that's true. That's <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, but but anyway, um, and of course, the steel one. Um, the official Gurkha knives, the specs called for railroad iron for the blade. And the sheaths suck. I mean, they're pretty. They can be very pretty, but they're, they're not very utilitarian. Well, they're, so, they're, they're carved wood with a leather overlay. Right. And the leather is thin. And anyway, they're... I, I know uh, this because the one I have, the leather is completely deteriorated and I've got right. just two pieces of wood. Yeah. So I read an article and I think... Uh, one of the gun magazines, I can't remember which one it was, not that it makes any difference. It was the good one. Yeah, the good one. And they had, they had a knife column. And guy talked about a guy down in Texas who was making, whose name I can't remember, of course, because uh, I'm old and my mind is decrepit. It was Joe the Knife Guy. Yeah, Joe You've the Knife Guy. done phenomenal things. Tex, Tex the Knife Te Guy. Joe Tex the Knife Guy. Right. So anyway, uh, the article was about him making a kukri. And there was a picture, and it was quite nice. And I was in the climbing equipment business back then, manufacturing. I was reading that, reading that article, and I called a guy. This is 1973, maybe, 74, somewhere around in there. Hey, Kyle, where were you in 1974? Shut up. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, that was a good idea, just for the record. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, I called a guy up. And um, I said, um, I'm interested in buying one of those kukri knives. And there was kind of a long pause. And he said, you know, he said, I'm not sure I ever want to make another one of those. That it was it was damn difficult. But he said, if I did, I'd have to have $400 for it. Well, 400 bucks back then. Yeah, they'd buy you a car. They'd buy you a used car. Not a good used car. No. But anyway, I had a bunch of heat-treatable steel on the back. And I had a grinder. And I had a bandsaw. And, and an idea. And an idea. So I let the idea gestate for a while and um, came up with the, the Meshax, which was a kukri-like object. As I like to say, a bent knife. A bent knife. So my favorite camp tool before that was one of the old case survival machetes from I got out of a seat pack I bought because I've always co kind of collected survival equipment. And that that's a heck of a blade. It's a great blade. And so I combined the Kukri uh, blade shape, sort of, and, um, and I reworked the handle 
profiles and dimension and grips and stuff off of that case and came up with the Mishaks. I've always been, being German, uh, there are two things that kind of, um, being German-American, excuse me, I wanted it held for stout. And of course, I was, I was thinking, I had a manufacturing mindset back then. So I'm thinking, okay, I may want more than one. Because well, one's expensive, two is reasonable. Three is beginning to get reasonable. And then I thought about friends that I had who would like them. And so um, I made 100. That's a bold man. And I didn't have, well, I that's what it was. It was <laughs> that damn is a great stupid. deal of confidence. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'd back myself into the night which both from a personal and a business standpoint has been a wonderful thing. Um, I've, I've made the, probably some of the, well, some, m- most of the best friends I have, I've, I've gotten through the night business. And, um, after pouring money into the company for 20 years and all of a sudden it's starting to make pretty decent money. You're that Kyle. We're just 18 years away from being profitable. There you go. Or 20. <laughs> so, so part of the, you were able to kind of scale that up because you already had a lot of the manufacturing from the climbing equipment or? Well, most of, most of the things, I was so ignorant of the knife, of the knife business. I, I mean, that thing about you really don't know what you don't know mm-hmm. really hurts. Um, if you've never taken a look at the Dunning-Kruger uh, curve, that that's a, a pretty good uh, psychological Mount Stupid and the Valley of Despair. It's it's a good graph of knowledge versus uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. confidence. So, I mean, I milled the flats. I mean, I milled the, the profiles. Okay. On purpose? Well, because that's what I knew. <laughs> okay, on a production basis, oh, I wasn't going to be standing at the grinder oh. and grind them, grinding them. What I knew was milling machines. So um, I found a guy who had a CNC mill, which was pretty pretty rare back then. Um, used forty one forty steel because that's what I made piton hammers out of. If you can pound through rock with it, it ought to make a um, yeah. decent blade. And it's it's kind of amusing to me because many many people have told me forty one forty. That's not a knife steel. It is if you make it into a blade. <laughs> and. Uh, people that kind of were shocked, I'd say, well, does it cut pretty good? Uh, yeah. Uh, does it hold an edge reasonably well? Uh, yeah. Well, I guess it's not a knife steel. And the great thing about 4140 is is that in an impact tool, which which the, the shack certainly was, it's really hard to screw it up. And, and that's you, wisdom right there, people. Choose things that make it hard for you to screw up. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, look, I'm German. I can break anything. I have yet to break a Meshach's. I actually just called out 4140 on a print I submitted to the machine shop for a fixture we're making for work today, actually. But it's, <laughs> it, is it ideal, nice steel? No, but it does work. Mm-hmm. And I made especially the in the era three, that you were working in. Yeah, in the first three years or the th- first three knives I made were out of forty one forty. So, so the, the early campaigns were forty one forty. 
Uh, that's the BK2. The um, tactile, which is a BK1, I think. I'm not sure I've seen. I've seen. I've got yeah. a BK2. I don't know if I've ever seen a BK1. It's. Um, I've, I've designed it uh, because it was working with uh, the Hamilton County SWAT team. Was I was kind of a mascot of theirs. They wanted a pry bar with a sharp edge they could beat on stuff with. Oh, okay. I didn't know that was the BK1, but I'm... Yeah, it was the BK1 after, I think, uh, starting in Camillus. I didn't have numbers. I had names. Yeah. So Camillus started using numbers, and um, I think that carried over. So you, I still think it was a tack tool. So. so you talked a little bit about your, your time growing up in the wilds of Ohio and your fascination with the kukri. But what are some of your inspirations, and not over time, because our inspirations change, but where do you find your inspiration for your designs? Well, occasionally they're historical. The Kephart blade certainly is, is one, and I didn't design that. I, I, you're, I shepherded it through the... Your variation process. is, that's the BK-64? 62. 62, excuse me. Um, one of the last ones was inspired by one of the guys working for K-Bar, and I changed the, the blade profile, but I was looking toward making one very similar to it and couldn't talk K-Bar into it. And one of the guys that was working there came up with a similar idea. <laughs> they wanted to make it, so uh, we changed that around a little bit, and it, it, um, it worked out very well. Um, that's a harpoon. We used that a little bit this weekend. I was, yeah. I'm used to a very different blade profile, so it took me a minute, but it's a very intuitive blade shape. Yeah, and I I got the blade shape actually from uh, Bensinger, and, and, and excuse me, Bensinger influenced the way I did the blade. And he's got a lot of Indonesian, a lot of Indonesian stuff. He is a brilliant designer and a hell of a good uh, bladesmith too. But um, and I happen to like him a great deal. That but, helps. Yeah, but I got one of his um, kind of bolo looking. Uh, can't remember what he calls it. Um, Kyle will research that. It'll be down in the show notes. If you don't okay. see it, just keep going down. Kyle will have it there for you. But he's um, uh, he sent one of his knives down to one of the Beckerhead gatherings, and I got a chance to use it, and I was like. Well, I'll be damned. <laughs> I may be old, but maybe I can learn a new trick or two anyway. Inspiration so. comes from surprising areas. And I, I tell everybody who is, wants to be in the business or is in the business that's just starting out, when you go to a knife show, when you go to a knife, a, a knife shop, pick up every single knife that you can and heft it and pretend like you're carving with it, pretend like you're chopping with it, if it's a big knife, or if it's a fighting knife that you've got any fencing. Making sweet, sweet love. Making sweet, sweet love. And so uh. every single blade will teach you something. It may teach you very simply, oh, this is some real garbage. Sometimes we learn what not to do. Exactly. I would say that everybody says you got to pick heroes. And you should pick heroes. You should also pick out an equal number of people you don't want to be. And so, the same thing is true of dives. Some of the very influential advice you gave me early on when we met 
was you talked about it's not just about learning the man you want to be. It's learning about the man you don't want to you be. You got it. Yeah. I'm sorry. We just had a moment. It'll take a second. <laughs> okay. We're good now. <laughs> so uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier. I haven't told you yet, but this this was actually the first official cookbook that I ever received as my own. Uh, my mom gave it to me right as I was leaving to go to college, and we now have copies of the the book to give to our boys when they get old enough to need a cookbook. But the joy of cooking, I was wondering. I'd like to interrupt you right now to tell you that you have a wonderful mother. I have not met her. <laughs> yeah. But she's a wonderful person. But she is wise and kind and generous. And we know yeah. that because she's still alive. God, <laughs> yeah, she was she was pretty awesome. How did how did your family get involved in the the joy of cooking uh, the book? Well, my grandmother um, had been recently widowed, and she was fifty ish, I think, and um, she didn't have very much money. She decided to make a cookbook and sell it. And it's interesting because the women in the family said to her, Irma. If you wrote a cookbook, who would buy it? Because she was not considered to be the best cook in the family. But she was a great entertainer. Uh, She had a lot of, um, she really liked to give dinners and stuff and one thing or another. And she actually learned to cook from uh, her husband, who had learned camp cooking. But she also knew all the really good cooks in the family and amongst her friends. And she compiled uh, 500 recipes with a casual culinary chat. And it's, historically, it's very interesting because the book came out in 1931. And uh, thanks to the crash, a lot of uh, middle class, upper middle class housewives were cooking for the first time. And nobody thought of cooking as being any fun at all. They thought of it as something you had to do. It was pre-TV dinners. And, um, and here's this, this amusing woman, and she was that. She was a sweetheart, who was saying, you know, you can make this fun. Mm-hmm. And she was a great raconteur, and uh, she loved radio. and she. Um, started, uh, she was quite successful, and she ended up finding a publisher through some of the um, Indianapolis relatives. The rest is history, and I think we've sold 16, 18 million copies uh, since 1931. And you're, you're, you're what, seventh edition? No, it's like nine Ninth edition, something like that. Yeah. You did. You did the ninety-seven edition, and your son John has done the. We did. The, we did the. Uh, I did the the uh, ninety-seven and the two thousand six. Uh, two thousand was the seventy-fifth anniversary edition. Yeah, that that and, was the book that I got. Uh, was the the seventy-fifth. Uh, 75th year. The, new, the new one is even better. My kid did it. He did a much better job. You know, I'm within arm's reach, so I'm hesitant to say this, but I have enjoyed the general. Uh, the most recent edition has got more of the down home feel that I 
We got most of the publisher out of that one. And I know the backstory on what yeah. it took to get we your book we out. Don't wanna, we and don't want to get into We that. don't have six hours to get into that. Right. But the current edition kind of feels like going back to the roots. It's the downhill. It's going deal. back to the roots, but it is. My son is a demon researcher. He's a really good cook. He's married to a woman who is, a good, is also a, both a good writer and an incredible baker. It, she and, saw my pecan pie issue for me, which yeah. I'm forever indebted. And um, and the, the current book is, is actually, I think, the seven uh, the 1975 edition, which was my mom's last one, was the one I measured every other toy by before or since. But John and Megan put together a tremendous book. And. Kyle got to tell his story of cooking story, so I'm going to interrupt a little bit okay. with mine. Um, I married, as we can all agree, well above my station. And, That's severely understating the case. And we had gotten to a custom before children of a certain level of dining. And Jack was born premature. I dropped out of college. We went from... Hey, Dan, you finish your engineering degree, and then we're going to have a, a traditional family, and I'll stay at home to, we don't have time for you to finish your engineering degree, and oh, by the way, I've got a three-week business trip. And there I was, newborn child, I'm now the stay-at-home, trying to figure stuff out. How did you deal with the nursing issue? Um, you know, like anything, you just stick with it, eventually it's going to happen. <laughs> He just believed. Yeah. Um, and there I was. I opened up the the cabinet with all the cookbooks, and the joy of cooking was top shelf, far left. And I pulled it out. And I'd say I started at page one, but it was really, it was like 36. There's tables and stuff. And I worked my way through the joy of cooking, and that's how I learned to cook. And every so often, I'd get caught on something, and... I had my buddies that were chefs, and I'd say, hey, I don't understand this. And they'd give me the language, but that's how I learned to cook. Yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of um, guys who went on to be famous chefs taught themselves how to cook, out of the joy. And it's, it is truly, and I'm, I'm trying to put on my, I'm trying to be rational about this, but I don't think there is a more versatile cookbook in the English language right now. Yeah, we cover canning and preserving. We cover cooking in your fireplace. We cover um, game prep, game how prep, to dress grain, game. Um, uh, every, every form of preservation. We have a, a, a chapter called Know Your Ingredients, uh, which is a little dictionary, and you can teach yourself all of the about about all of, of the ingredients that you're dealing with, and it's and it it it's kind of one stop shopping. And the recipes ain't bad. Mm -hmm. Some of them are mine, and those especially are extremely good. Uh, and one of the things that I really appreciated as Beth moved up in the corporate world, we were called on to entertain. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I appreciated is I learned how to cook pretty quickly. But learning pairings mm -hmm. and what dishes 
there was a lifeline of there was a section of okay here's a menu yeah here are all the rest here's where to find all the recipes and all of these recipes go together and for the first four or five years of entertaining at the corporate level for Beth's people that was my lifeline when I needed to do a menu for 14 people five courses I mean, I, I knew recipes, but I didn't know what went together. And that was a great guideline of, okay, here's the things, here's the flavor profiles that fit together. Here's how to make a menu. And that was a, a lifeline for me. Well, I'm, I'm pleased that that was the case. Let's get back to knives. <laughs> yeah, because they're way cooler. Manly knives. No more uh, no more cooking. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk knives and killing and, and food. Oh, Although I will say that the cookbook has gotten me uh, both when I was uh, climbing and uh, camping uh, or uh, and hunting and stuff, got me into places that I would not normally have gotten into because people assumed that I could feed them. Yeah. Look, never go camping with a skinny guy. I'm just saying. Yeah. If a blade show happens and you happen to be there, uh, FYI, I'm going to have you sign all three books for uh, me and the boys. Just heads up already. If Blade Show happens, Ethan when, will be there. When Blade Show happens. Yes. And Kyle, don't feel get bad. I completely fanboyed out. Like had to apologize to Ethan as I brought him. My, the spine was broken. There were coffee stains. It was dog-eared all over the place. Beth is like, you, you, you're not going to show him your, that book. I'm like, it's the books. You've trashed it. I'm like, it's the book. Yeah. And every time I see, every time I see a joy that looks like that, it makes me proud. Yeah. Because it means it was you. My favorite fan letter we ever got for the book was a woman who said that if the wolf ever came to her door, it would eat the her joy copy of Joy of Cooking first because it had more food value than the rest of rest of what was in her pantry <laughs> um, for knives yes as we were getting back to knives what would you say and this is a this is a little bit of a or a complex question because there's a breadth of knowledge here so when i say what defines your style i really should break it down to what defined the early becker style and then how has it evolved over time early on been, I was in the mountain climbing equipment business, rock climbing equipment. And that's um, stuff you hang your life on. If it breaks, it's considered a bad form on the part of the maker. Um, so I was still in the, oh, my God, what happens if one breaks? So stuff tended to be quarter, start off with quarter-inch thick steel. They were they were useful knives, but they were a little heavier than they needed to be. And as time has gone on, I realized that even as a kid, the only time I broke a knife was throwing knives, was, was throwing the damn things. With the exception of trying to pry something out of a stump, the only way I've ever broken a knife was throwing it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I've, I've, I've had people try, I've tried to get people to explain to me what happens when you throw a decently tempered blade at something. And the answer is it sticks or it breaks. 
Those yeah, are your two right, options. Exactly. That's the metallurgical, uh, the technical metallurgical, <laughs> scientific explanation. We refer to that as brickification. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, as time has gone on, the blades have the blades have gotten thinner. Um, the BK nine now is uh, three sixteen or uh, five thirty seconds stock, and is in its best shape that it's. I mean, best fighting form, as it were, as that it's ever been. I don't think we've ever broken, anybody's ever broken one of those that has the laser marking as opposed to the stampings. You've got to do something monumentally stupid to break a Becker knife. And as someone that is monumentally stupid, I feel confident making that statement. No, um, I watched one get broken. Uh, uh, it was one of the stamped ones. And I thought when people told me that the stamping would, would give you stress. So I happened to be downrange at one of the Beckerhead gatherings out in Oregon. Guy, guy was, we were having a chopping contest, and he hit a little flat. Yeah. And um, technique is everything. And, um, well, he was, he was speeding, yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, wasn't his fault. And... All of a sudden, um, I saw most of the BK-9 blade coming at me. Uh, luckily, his aim was off, so we're, I'm, I'm still good. It's pretty difficult to break modern cutlery if, if it's been heat-treated properly, and it can, you can do it. I imagine you spent a lot of your time like I did. I was terrified of a knife being broken. Exactly. Like, my reputation rides yeah. on every single blade. Yeah. I have had, I've, I've been at it for a little over 10 years. I had one break. The client admitted, hey, I shouldn't have been doing this, but it broke. And I said, fix or replace, guaranteed. Give me, give me a little time. I'll make you a new one. I got to put you in the, the work schedule. And I was really upset. And one of the guys at the Georgia Guild said, this is the best thing could happen to you. And I was trying to figure out how someone breaking a knife was the best thing that could happen it's to me. What you do to make it right. He said, up until now, your warranty was theoretical. Right. Now it's factual. I had, I had a kind of a fun thing happen. I mean, in a sense, it was fun. A, a Czech corporal in a Czech army, and he had, I think, a BK-7. And somehow it got broken. Tank right over it. No, it, you know, my story's cool. Feces occur. <laughs> so I happen to be visiting one of uh, one of the one of one of the Becker um, Becker Forum guys out in out in. Uh, I just happen to be visiting and was connected with a Czech Army corporal because that happens to everyone. We had been out to a bar and restaurant. We're coming back. I get a phone call from Bladeite, I think it was. This is and why said, you're the most interesting man alive. I've tried to explain this yeah. to you. Anyway, I, I, I'm on the I'm, – I'm driving home. I've had one too many beers uh, to be rational. So two. Yeah. So <laughs> I get this word that this had broken his knife. And for a Czech corporal 
They don't pay check corporals any money. He's you know, spent a month's pay on this. He, yeah, he had he had real dollars for him on this night. So I got on on there on a on a forum and I said, "Look, I've been at the bar. Life is, um, I and I can't do anything about it at ten thirty at night. So um, as soon as Monday morning rolls around, I'll make sure it gets taken care of." Well, people went a little bonkers that somebody was willing to do that. And it's what I would want somebody to do for me if I had broken their knife. Take care. And that's just, uh, just all there is to it. If you treat people the way you want to be treated, then, you know, they, they respond to that. And one of the problems that we all have in this, uh, at this time in our lives and the life of the, of the world, have you tried to talk to a human being when you had a complaint at a large company? What? Press one to... Yeah, first yeah. of all, Press try to get to a human being. Right. I mean, you can't do it. They want you to use email. Okay, that's great. But, you know, sometimes I just want to ream somebody out. Or I need to explain something, and not everybody. I'm a, I'm an okay writer, so I can explain myself. But I don't want to do that. I want to deal with a human being who has a human emotion. Besides which, all of my please take care of me techniques don't work. You can't hear the whine in my voice. You know, on the on the business owner side, nothing handles a situation better than. You're right. We'll take care of it. Yeah. My original guarantee, which um, is that if you break a blade, we will replace it without question. But we want to know how you did it. Not required. If you um, break the handle off of it, um, we're going to charge you to rehab it. Because I've never broken the handle off of something. You know, I have... So I fixed one that someone was batoning and they got carried away and hit the flat of the blade. And we took a little while to get around to that. And they were a little sheepish. And I told them, you know, fix or replace guarantee. I don't care how you broke it. I just want to know how so I can prepare for that. Yeah. I mean, and then everything else has been tips and it's funny because it takes a minute for somebody to finally go, well, I was throwing it at a tree. Shit, I've done that plenty. Could have saved us 10 minutes if you told me that up front because right. I'm doing it either way. <laughs> By the way, there are two ways uh, batoning, just a, a word to the wise, always hit on the tip side of the blade. Yeah. For some reason, and again, I have no idea why this happens, but 90% of all batoning breaks happen because they were hammering on the hammering on the blade between the uh, target and the hand the hand holding the blade my the- my theory suspicion is the tip gets buried and rather than reset it they back their hand out and don't think about the physics involved that you've now made the tip and the handle immobile and you're applying force in the middle my client will take that matter under advice <laughs> But um, I did a test on one of um, Duke Kaboom's knives, 
and um, <clears throat> with a comparative test because he made me angry. It, <laughs> it, um, there was an inclusion. That blade had an inclusion. I didn't even know what I was looking at at the time because I was I, I, I was so ignorant. Hey, what's this dark spot? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, inclusions happen. Um, when I was in the climbing equipment business, we made piton hammers, and I, the piton heads were made out of 4140, which is very tough. I used mil-spec 4140, which means I started keeping paperwork on it when it came out of the ground. I used an aircraft forger out in Colorado Springs to mil-spec, and um, when I got one of those solid lumps of metal in, it was about as tough as anything you could possibly get. So one of my two employees came up to the front, and I was sitting at my drafting table, and he said, uh, boss, what the hell is this? And there was a what appeared to be a hairline crack. And I said, I don't know. And I had a little, I made a little itty-bitty tiny piton called a crack tack. And no, you, you can't. You can't. <laughs> and uh, I had I'd gotten Self-made. a new lathe and I'd been screwing around with it and I had made a little tiny hammer for knocking the pins out of my samurai sword, which I didn't need. But it was an excuse to play with the lathe. But if you have steel and yeah, manufacturing capability, so I hit that. I I put the put it on my drafting table. It gives you an idea how how heavy I hit it. You, you mean like that one right over there? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm old. I barely, barely touched it. And it came apart in two pieces. So that was a very valuable lesson to me. I figured out, unless you fluoroscope every single every single piece of metal that goes out of your shop, it might, it might shit happens. Shit happens. The so, goal is to make shit happen less for you exactly, than it does everyone else. Exactly. And, I mean, that, that thing was, um, uh, I think, I'm pretty sure it had been annealed. I mean, that should not have happened. I mean, that's like, what, but, what, what are the odds? So, But all you can do at that point is stand behind the only, your product. Yeah, the only thing you can it. do is say, oops, um, Please send it to us so if there's something we are doing that we can, re, you know, make sure it doesn't happen again. I know now, one, one, one exception to that, the patrol machete, um, and I warned Camillus about this, um, the amount of material at the heel of the blade were too thin, and also the heat treated them uh, a few points too high, and we'd get... Just huge conchoidal fractures out of out of the especially place. from machete. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, and they full high grounded. I didn't want them to do that. But um, side uh, note, that's why I carry three blades. Right. You know, if if you think of blade task as a one to three scale, you can get a three to do to do a two, or you can get a one to do a two. Right. So if you're carrying three blades. Right. Light, medium, and heavy. If one of them fails, you can always get some overlap from the other two. And I, I'll say this too: I've, I've designed every blade. I've designed my big blades so that they can be used as little blades. 
I grind as close to the handle as I grind as close to the handle as I can, so that if you you got to work fine work up you close to the handle, fine you work, can. and every little blade with a baton should be able to do the work of a big blade. Yeah. Uh, that's why the the uh, the little Becker Necker uh, the thirteen you can literally use a baton and take down four to six inch trees. Now, is it an efficient way to take a four to six inch tree down? No. But it's also true that one time I was at a, a fire class one time down at, at Charles Worsham's place. I built a, a bow drill set using a the patrol machete, which was a 14 inch blade. Right. We were in pretty close quarters, and some of the people working close to me were uh, quite nervous. But uh, we can talk about station knives later. Yes, there you go. <laughs> so, but I really feel that every blade should be able to do every job. It should do one job really well, and, and then on the, either side of that spectrum, be functional. I was talking to Will Fennell, who is um, who is quite a history with Becker Knife and Tool because of his association as a salesperson and as, um, a person who bounced ideas off of me when he was at Camillus and I bounced ideas off of him and a tremendous guy. Also the son of Wallace Fennel and um, a demon hunter and a true knife guy. <laughs> and he's, we were talking about things being able to do everything and he said, he said, you know, he said, I've skinned a deer with a broken bottle. You can. You that can. doesn't mean you want to. No, but that's what he had. Yeah. And he needed to get it field dressed. And and he may have done it on a bet knowing him. But you're getting the heat off. You're cooling the meat down. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah. Task achieved. So I don't know where. I, we went down a rabbit hole. Let's get back on task. Uh, we were talking about how phenomenal the designs are at Dogwood Custom Knives. <laughs> so, and by the way, I, I, I hesitate to say this. No, I think, okay, we're going to change the subject. <laughs> and Dan, Dan's actually, um, he started talking about his design philosophy, and I'm going, okay. It's not very much similar to my own, but on the other hand, he has some valid points. And I hate I hate to admit this, but I ordered a couple of his knives today. It was a very awkward, not awkward, but there was a moment in our relationship where I had infinite respect for your experience and your knowledge and your design philosophy, but I had come from a, a different direction. And... and those moments that we disagreed, I learned a lot from. I was right. It's getting pretty deep over here in South Carolina. Hey, save your watch. Yes. Keep that above your head. Keep the watch above your head. Yeah, save the watch. Save the watch. No, I. We have not always agreed, but I have always learned, and I, I, all bullshit aside, I do appreciate that. Yeah, well, I appreciate, you know, the insights you've given me. All right. I mean, yes. So anyway, (laughs) let's quickly go beyond this 
So uh, you, we talked about some of your designing stuff. How do you go about designing a, a new knife working with K-Bar or one of the other companies you've worked with? Do you start out with paper or do you start with kind of make it a prototype or how does that whole process work working with a big company? Well, in my case, I don't like, I mean, cause I'm not sure how other people do it. Most in the old days, um, you sent a knife that you had made. If you were a knife maker, you sent a knife to them and they worked off of a prototype. I, have made knives. I make sure that nobody gets to see them because they are proof of concept knives and they are ugly and they are poorly made. If I'm working with my hands, I'm usually mangling wood rather than metal. And that's uh, a, a, that's a shameful secret. I'm not um, going to lie. One of my prized possessions are a Becker box. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, well, what's a Becker box? So it, it, one of the last uh, Beckerhead gatherings up in Tennessee, um, my Coke box, my kitchen box, slid off the the side-by-side, the goat headed up to the camp area. And I think exploded is probably the best definition. <laughs> when it came off the back and hit the ground, Objects traveled in a 365-degree arc. And Ethan, being the man that he is, said, I'll make you a new box. I have made a lot of boxes. No box I have ever had was made at furniture-grade standards. (laughs) It is the most over-engineered box I have ever owned. And it is stamped Becker knife Knife and Tool on the side. And it is it is all wood. No matter what vehicle it slides off of, it will never explode. It's that German thing. One day, if you ruin enough wood in the presence of Ethan, he will he will make a box for you as well. <laughs> all righty. I still need to make it to one of those Becker gatherings at some point. We are hoping to have one in Montana. Uh, I'm living on the West Fork of the Bitterroot. Um, two hours south of Missoula. We have a beautiful campground that um, the guy whose ranch I'm squatting on, and it's you can roll out of your tent and be on the best cutthroat uh, fishery in the United States by walking about as far as you would to go to an outhouse if you were somewhere else. When he says best cutthroat, as in try fishermen kill each other for a chance at this stretch of the stream. Yeah. So, and uh, we have we have a cookhouse. We have showers. <laughs> Blasphemy. No, 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 no. Do you have any idea how smelly you get after several days? Well, no, I'm immune to my own toxins. Exactly. <laughs> I've just, I'm not. I've, I smelled him at Blade Show and I knew he took a shower every day. <laughs> oh yeah i was totally showering every day <laughs> that that's why you wore the kilt right knives in the south in august you know the value of airflow <laughs> and by the way keep an eye on the becker forum in uh about two months 
um, if you're interested in coming. Uh, there's paved road all the way. It's a beautiful spot, and we will have um, several tons of fun. I see an opportunity. And there's no, no hard liquor, or no, excuse me, no white liquor allowed. All right, so charred liquor is good? If it's low proof. I'm, I'm going to need some. I'm going to need some clarification on that because that's we a very relative this term. Later. <laughs> you talking like white claw? I'm sorry. Did you hear something? E. I, there was a, a slight vibration. It didn't really register with me. It sounded like I'm 23 and I'll never get a date. Yeah, but, that's my that's my coworkers. But, <laughs> but to get to get back to the collaboration process, I do up a drawing. And um, the president of uh, KBAR, John Stitt, will occasionally say, I have no interest in that in trying to sell that night. And, and the wonderful thing about John is, is that when he says no, he doesn't say, well, let me think about that. Well, and this so is the balance that, between function and marketability. Right. This is where you try and, to find and, that sweet spot. And, um, having... Um, Having designed some real bombs, I, I understand. I mean, he's the one risking thousands and thousands of dollars. So I have found my collaboration with KBAR to be absolutely marvelous. Um, the people there are the quality control there. You know, a lot of people who, who sell their designs after having been made, making them themselves whine about how the fact that the quality went to and all that stuff. Well, I hate to say this, but it's true that um, the quality that I was producing out of the garage in Cincinnati. Um, in batches of 50. Uh, sometimes not quite that many. Um, don't even come close to matching what KBAR is doing. And they have a really good, they have a fantastic heat treater. And it's interesting, they make my knives in the same general department that they make the um, Marine Combat, um, the 7-inch, uh, quote, K-bar knife. And uh, every time I go up there, there seems to be some slight change for the better after 70 years. They're striving to make a better knife than they did yesterday. It's that finer, final tweaking that... Where can I find 3%? Where can I find 3%? And sometimes it's been a half a percent. Sometimes it's been an improvement in production. But I've never seen anything that they've done to improve production that subtracts from the quality. And I I mean, and to me, that's a real tribute. You know, the, the whole concept about Kaizen, the concept of constant uh, product improvement, that's what, to me what separates the men from the chillins. Um, over the years, have there's has there been a, a shift in steels that you like? It's, especially in the last ten years, there's been some things that have just kind of turned the industry on the head. Are there some are there some go to old school, or has it kind of become wild west? Things are changing so quickly. Well, one of the things, and I mean, one of the reasons. I'm going to go back to history. One of the reasons that the Mishak, the early Mishaks and Campanians and Tactools 
were so good, even though they were 4140. Because my plant, my little tiny plant, my shop, was right across the street from the Cincinnati Gear Company. They probably knew something about heat treatment. And they knew a lot about 4140 because they made a lot of gears out of 4140. And in their backyard, there was a company called the Cincinnati Steel Tree Company. And the architecture of that building was identical to the one at the Cincinnati Gear Company. Really? And there was a kind of a well-trodden path between (laughs) the two. And they could heat treat, do a tremendous job on heat treat on Mondays, on Fridays, and all the days in between. And um, they were were good. And as it happened, there were a couple of knife nuts over in the uh, steel treating uh, part. And so they paid extra special attention. And to me, you have to think of the entire the entire process. The guy who is now doing their heat treating of my knives is not in is not an Oli, and he probably has. um, I haven't talked to him about it, but he probably could heat treat Kleenex and make it work right. But K Bar has a huge investment in two steels. And I mean, and, and by investment, I'm not talking money, I'm talking expertise. Well, that, that tweaking of 1% here, 2% 1% there, here. and over time it builds up right. to this, this perfect golden recipe. So they use a tremendous amount of 440A, which is one of the most underrated um, of the, the 440 series. I think it actually makes better knife steel on 440C. That's a bold statement. Yeah, uh, it is. Um, it's mechanically uh, a little bit stronger. But the reason people that I, and, and kind of my beginning, the, the, the generation of when I first got in the business, the reason I our used 440C. Yes, our your ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> you better not go to sleep tonight, buddy. So, <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take applications to be a co-host of the Knife Perspective. <laughs> 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 Kyle, <laughs> applications for two hundred, Alex. <laughs> because four forty C polished better. Mm, it does. And the big and, and 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 the the fashion back then was shinier knives were better knives. Oh well, of course, bling yeah. is better, baby. Bling, bling is better. Yeah, all that mirror, all the mirror polish stuff. Yeah, exactly, and 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 that was a sign of a good maker, uh, or one of the signs of a good maker. Um, it never did to me, but that's I'm one of those outliers. So, but the 440A, I think, is toothier. The 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 Naza gives you a more aggressive cut. A more aggressive cut, and that's to me that's an extremely important thing. I love A2 because it cuts like a screaming. And, but I don't like the fact that if it's heat treated up, you get it, it edges tend to chip and all that stuff. But it's a great steel if, if dealt with. Uh, Chris Reeves' original knives, those hollow handled knives, best hollow handled knives that were ever made, those were all A2. They were solid A2. Back to working great with knives. Those. Back to work with a company like K-Bar, what are the, there's always a trade-off. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of being able to team up with a with a partner like that? 
I don't see any downside. You, if you can get a deal um, with a company like KBAR, they think um, they tend to be. I always said about the president of, the, of um, Cutco that owns KBAR, that you could lay uh, you could lay him on his own drafting table and use him for a straight edge. So if you've got somebody who deals honestly and is willing to do the work to your satisfaction, then you you don't have any you don't have any work in it, and you get money in the mail. So, and money in the mail is good money. So it's if about I don't have to if, if if I can design something and somebody will make it and send me my my fair share, I'm a lucky man. Mailbox money. So yeah. part of it, but part of it is finding, if you're going to partner with somebody larger, it's finding somebody with the, the same concept as you have. Well, not just the same concept, but are you going to, I mean, Blackjack never gave me squat as far as the money, the money in the mail did not come in the mail. It didn't come. Um for what it's worth, some of these guys that that are coming up, part of what you're probably not being told, and maybe you should, is all the stumbles, all the wrong connections that it took. I mean, Becker Knife and Tool isn't the new kid on the block. But it, gotta, didn't, it didn't make any money until about 10 years ago. <laughs> and that's when I found I, – I, I got to deal with K-Bar. When Camillus went under, they – some insiders there told me that they owed me um, better than six-figure money, and um, which did not make me um, extremely happy. You can so, only write off so much. Um, yeah, write off that whole write-off concept is the thing to do is to get as much money as you can, pay as few taxes as you can, but the, and yeah, write off all your expense you can, but. Uh, there's a point at which... Um, so part of it is get yours up front. Part of it is, it's a loaded statement, but find a partner you can trust. because Which is not always easy. I am a poster child for that. Um, probably circle back around to, it don't mean <laughs> if it's not in writing. I would say if you feel you have to get it in writing, you need to go somewhere else. The writing part is something that two honest people can look at and say, okay, that's kind of the guidelines of what we're going to do. I, but if you, if you have to have it in writing, or you feel you have to have it in writing, you're dealing with the wrong person. I could make a handshake deal, John Stitt or his dad, and I would feel, I, I wouldn't worry about it a bit. You know, I, might be oversharing here, but I'll say LT Wright. I did twenty thousand dollars with him on a handshake, and and all was good. Yeah, it, single best deal I've ever. I I did a twenty thousand dollar deal, and I probably got thirty thousand dollars worth of value out of it. Yeah, and LT is LT is one of those people that you can. I have never dealt with him on of, of the way you have, but I've heard. Absolutely nothing but positive things about him, except for one person who will not remain, who shall remain yeah, nameless. Yeah. And, and that name's being struck in from the record anyway, right. so. 
So, and, and when partnerships break up, everybody's unhappy. But I have done handshake deals with him and have never been right. but benefited. Recently, some of the larger deals I've done, we've put it in writing, but that was a matter of clarifying expectations. That's all that is. Because contracts, I know from personal experience, get broken all the damn time. If you, I have, have had a saying over a long period of time, all business is personal. Oh, there's nothing more personal than my money. Exactly. <laughs> well, your wife, your kids, your dog. No, those are for sale. Those, that isn't money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, um, Putting it in writing helps clarify what's that, going on. That's true. But that, that's what the contract is for. But your clarity on if you feel like you need a contract, you shouldn't be. Well, I'll go this way. The knife industry is still a small enough industry that you can't screw more than one or two people. Without everybody knowing it. Yeah. So check with your friends and neighbors. Check with people who have done business with the company you're thinking about. And with a lot of those companies, the collaborations, um, uh, there'll be, there'll be previous collaborations. Go to the collaborators. I put on your bullshit sniffer, but ask questions. How are they on quality? Because it is your name. That's going to be on the blade. What other makers or designers have worked with them? Yeah. All that stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of advantages to working with a larger company. They've got the manufacturing capabilities. They've got the marketing capabilities, but check their reputation. And yeah. if you start to feel like you need a contract in this industry, my opinion is always have a contract. Yes. That way the two of oh, you yeah. clearly yeah, yeah. know. I mean, I have a contract with K-Bar. Okay. I'm glad it's there so we can all refer to it and say. If there's confusion, yeah, you can you, go back and go, oh, That's my bad. I was supposed to do that. Right. So, um, but if you don't feel comfortable doing business with somebody, you probably shouldn't. I've done that. And it's not just <laughs> in the knife business. And every time that I've said to myself, I probably shouldn't have be doing this. I probably shouldn't have done that. I was going to say, how many crushing failures were preceded by, I don't have a good feeling about this. Uh, boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have three quarters of a century <laughs> of, of crushing failures. And Please, dear God, if you're not going to learn from my successes, pick something up from my failure. You got it. Because, yeah. I mean, every everybody, every businessman has had failures. I've had a bunch of them. The important thing to do is to learn from it. And rearrange the ashes, find some fresh fuel, and uh, pour a little gasoline on it. Get to get a three pack of kitchen matches and go back to work. Oh, so how did you come to be working with with K Bar? You were you were your own entity. You were you were building knives. I met I met John Stitt at a shot show, and I you know I was around looking at knives because I like knives because they're awesome. Yeah. John was there, and um, we got to talking. I saw him again at Blade Show, I think, and we talked. And 
He said, I'm not poaching. But if you do happen to leave where you are, please talk to me. And um, Camillus went tits up, and I left um, Ole, or left um, Camillus, New York, and drove to K-Bar the same day, um, same day after the auction closed, and oh, uh, signed a deal. I was going to ask because there is a a mythical story about you having to buy your own name back. Um, yeah, and that that. If you'd rather not, but that seems like a great cautionary tale about who you, who you do that, that with. has that whole business about trusting people. But I'll say this. The guy I made the deal with at Camillus, who shall remain nameless, at the time I did it, his name was as golden as anybody in the knife industries. But he had um, he was dealing with a family board. He was an in-law. Mm. And um, the rest is history. Uh, it, it caused the demise of Schrade, and it caused the demise of Camillus because um, they wouldn't listen to the people who liked the knives and liked the business. And we, we may need to edit this out. I'm going to float this out. But mm -hmm. part of me feels like this is kind of an uplifting story about the community we live in, that there you were, Company, the company you were working with had gone under. Right. You're just trying to get your name back. And there are people that could have made your life miserable. They could have bought your name out from under you. It's also true. They, they were in massive breach of the contract. The contract had like three months left to run. But I knew if somebody bought it, there was going to be a lot of legal beagles, legal beagles involved, and it was going to be ugly because if they bought the name, they didn't buy it for three months. They were going to try and yeah, it was a strong name. They want to hold on to that. And there were some people who were looking at buying it, who um, shall remain nameless, who I had a very low opinion of. And they were litigious people. I, yeah, I didn't know there was that much. And actually, A.G. Russell had let it be known that anybody who bid against me for that, for my own name, would never, ever do business with A.G. Russell ever again. And A.G. Was, was a giant in, the, in our community. In, in many ways, is, is One the keystone. Is yeah. the the reason the community is the way it is today. And it, that's true. He had a huge uh, influence. One of the smartest human beings and well-read human beings I have ever met in my life. A real, um, and a real gentleman. So we, we had a situation where you're at the auction, you're trying to buy your name back, and some of the pillars of the community set the standard of this is the community we're going to live in. Right. And well, it was AG. Yeah. And, and AG made the, it known that the downside of that is, you know, Phil Gibbs. Uh, by reputation. Gibbs, he was sitting next to me and he, um, when um, the gavel fell on that sold. 
And I got a great big wet sloppy kiss on the cheek <laughs> Bill Gibbs. This was not good. It was You're still good, in business, old boy. Yes. It's, it's, it's been some years, and it's still disgusting. <laughs> you still could feel it like it was yesterday? Yeah. Uh, raggy. <laughs> I'm going to have trouble sleeping tonight. Anyway, so... But no, I mean, just be sure of what you are. I mean, a lot of us, a lot of us are so anxious to get a deal. Our egos are involved. I have followed that. And there's greed. Um, I'm talking about my own. You may not be greedy at all. That's fine. Good. Uh, go, go home and tell yourself that over and over again. You don't work so, two jobs for nothing. Exactly. You don't come home from a job and start making knives. Right. Exactly. Without, without, I mean, all of us, a person who shall remain nameless um, said to me by the time he said, why do you make knives? And I said, well, I love knives. He said that I make money. I make knives to make money. It's. And guess what? Becker Knife and Tool was a hobby for me for a long time, but I always had faith that eventually things would work out. But for a long time, I could not have justified it to a wife if I hadn't had the cookbook to sustain it. And um, and also, um, I was, didn't have a wife for a long period in there. So, you know, part of what made part of what has allowed dogwood to grow is a combination of because I was doing the stay at home duties. My wife was willing to to basically credit. All right. All the money we're saving on child care is justified to the company. Yeah, right. Um, as we grew, it, it had value as a tax write-off, and that helped me limp along until I could actually be a company. Right. But, you know, what, um, one of the things which was a tremendous revelation to me, there are no theories of capitalism because capitalism is what happens when you leave people alone. <laughs> but it's also true that it is essentially a boon. And it's a, a person giving a boon to the community. You have to have an idea, and you have to give that idea. You have a knife concept. So you design it, you have to give that, I think. Then you have to buy the materials or borrow the money to get the materials or interest people into giving risk to yourself. the product. You have to risk yourself you to have get to the risk materials. Yourself, you have to risk your time your money, and then your energy, your work. And then you have to go out and whatever product it is and put it on the market to give it to the market and hope that somebody is willing to give you enough money in return that you're going to make a little bit. But the whole thing is voluntary, and it, the whole thing is, is gifting. You started. How to- the hell did we get started on this? That was a lecture I did not intend to give anybody. So, so Becker Knife and Tool really started to hit its stride just as forums were were coming to 
to oh, kind yeah. of a general. Oh, that was that was hilarious. I get a call from Will Fennell, and Will was uh, had a new project for for Camillus at that time, R and D, whatever. And he said, Ethan, he said, um, I've set up a forum, I've set up a Becker knife and tool forum. And I said, What's that? What's a forum? And he said, Well, you um, you get on and you make a post. And then people will write in and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, Will, I said, for Christ's sake, I'm a terrible typist. I said, I don't know any of these people. I probably wouldn't, you know, how would I? I mean, you're out of your mind. He said, Ethan, you have to do this. I said, I'm not doing it. Will, this is crap. And he said, do it. And he'd never given me bad advice before, so I did. And I've made some of the best friends I've ever had in my life. Well, and from that, the Becker heads were formed. But Right. But what was the genesis and how did, how the, did Becker the Becker heads, heads become what they are today? Um, Moose. Jason Ion came up with the concept. And he was one of the denizens of the, of the board, as it were. I, I guarantee you, having grown up as a person with one whose last name is one consonant removed from an intimate male body part, I did not come up with Becker heads. <laughs> Assumptions were made, and it, and, it, and from the beginning, I said that's not mine. That's the Becker heads. And they set the rules. You gave and them the freedom to be their I, own. And I, I said, everybody on my forum, you got to be, you got to be kind, you got to be polite, you got to share, and don't piss on each other, because it doesn't help. I mean, it's so easy online to be misinterpreted anyway. Yep. Because. You can't see the face of the person you're dealing with. You can't see I'm smiling when I say the thing that I'm saying. Right, exactly. And I was very lucky there, very lucky. Jason uh, Jason Ion, who's, um, who goes by Moose on the forum, great guy, fantastic. Happened to be a neighbor almost in Tennessee. And, oh, and then I had been going over to Terrell Hoffman's Knife Nuts in the Woods Weekends, mm-hmm. and I just really and thought that that was, became practice what you preach. That what started out as practice. What oh, you okay, and then I just to. called it knife nuts in the woods weekend. That is probably the more accurate description. Yes. So anyway, um, I went to the second one. I think had a great time. Uh, there were like eight people there when he did the last one. It was over 120 people, and he just was like. I just, can't, I just can't. I, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah, because he had to buy. You got. You do a prep of something like that. You got to buy insurance and all that crap. But I really loved. I loved it, and I loved the concept of a bunch of guys getting together on a weekend and having a, a good time and playing with knives, playing with other people's knives, playing with Becker knives. I prefer they play with Becker knives, but if they want to play with something else, I want to get in on it and I want to try it. So. Um, I said anybody who had uh, owned a Becker knife was welcome to come. And I had a cutoff because the facility that, that my place there wouldn't take more than about 35 people. Yeah. And I provided Friday night and Saturday nights 
meal provided but, but mostly protein you know mostly the protein and people brought stuff and people chipped in it was a great time out there on the hill it really was half moon ridge was a, a beautiful combination of there were several philosophies that all worked together in that i'm working for mine but i'm going to share mine with you yeah you know, exactly breakfast was everybody threw in something Man, everybody would bring, every individual probably bought, brought three dozen eggs. If you, if you didn't get a good breakfast at a Beckerhead gathering. It's because you slept in too late. You, you were too hungover to show up for breakfast. We had, we had a great time. We had a couple of rainy weekends that were turned out. Of course, I was in the big brick tent down, down below. Uh, it was always nice to be a member of the executive committee. That to the basement space all of a sudden was premium space. Yeah. So, um, but it was, did it help the business? Oh, buddy. Did I have a great time doing it? Yes, I did. Would I do it now? And I'm planning on doing it. At this point, would it really make that much difference to my, quote, bottom line? Probably not, but I'm going to do it because it's fun. Well, and a lot of these, I would argue that it was never going to help your bottom line. It was about the community. It was about like-minded individuals. It wasn't about, sure. But many of those people are influencers, as they say these days. Yeah. And to, to try and say that it was a, an act of total charity on my part, no, but it was a, an act of thankfulness to the people that bought my knives. It, it was a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. It was, they had given of themselves their time, their effort to buy your product. It was you showing an appreciation. And the two of because, you worked together to build something. You know, Vic used to bring a forge and uh, he's a blacksmith and oh, yeah. he would give blacksmithing lessons. Um, I did, I had what was mostly a wood shop, but I had a couple of grinders and I had, you know, I had the tools that were needed to make, to make knives and people would work on projects and have a good time and we'd have contests and one time. The Sorry great, about your tape measure, by the way. <laughs> and the great Jerry Fist came down one weekend when we reintroduced the BK5 and that was one of the best weekends we ever I had. I bet that was. And one thing that cracks me up about Jerry, and many things crack me up about Jerry, he's in my shop, and he was sharpening a $3 machete that belonged to some kid who was there. And here is the best, arguably the best knife maker in the United States. $75 worth of sharpening on a $3 machete. And he's happy as a clam because he said, Ethan, he said, you, your guys use their knives. I have very few customers who actually use the blades. And he said, I like to think I make a, a tool. Yeah. But, but he also makes some of the finest artifacts that have ever been made. So, no, and it's yeah. part of it is the. And he's, and he's a knife guy. I mean, he really is a knife guy. So I personally have got a tremendous number of good memories, and I think a lot of the people that came to it have those good memories. And I hope to continue doing it. Um, 
I've been trying to get out to a West Coast Becker gathering for a couple of years now. And part of it was the Becker had gathering on the West Coast as I can't survive without a CPAP machine anymore. I now have a battery uh, powered CPAP that I can take to the woods. And um, how selfish of you. You put breathing ahead of seeing your people. Uh huh. All right. Well, all right. I'll give you that. It's that whole breathing thing, I think, is important. I've heard people are addicted to it. Yeah. I know I am. So, uh, but now I can, uh, I mean, my backpacking days are over my, you know, and, uh, because they don't make one that small. <laughs> well, now it's a bit of a shifting of the poles. Yeah. Now I'm 75 years old and I'm half crippled from, you know, screwing up my back climbing. Decisions. And, Interesting decisions. Decisions. Yeah. yeah. So as I was, I was telling Dan, I think yesterday, you know, the whole survival, super primitive camping, the, the B word, the bushcraft word, those things are things that everybody should do, I think, who was interested in, um, in the outdoors, because you can get lost. I've been lost. To quote, I think it was Davy Crockett, it may have been Daniel Boone, who said, who was asked whether he'd ever been lost before, and he said, no. Never rightly been lost, but I there were a couple of times when my camp was lost. <laughs> and you should, I, I think, just as a matter of, of course, prepare yourself to be able to do that. But most of my really fun experiences have been involved four-wheel drive vehicles and coolers. and Well, they um, have significantly more towing capability than me. Buddy. Well, and this has been a little bit of a, a flip. It used to be kind of an East Coast focus because that's the easiest place for you to get to. Yeah. Now you're you're closer to the West Coast, so the, you're going to have a West Coast focus. And then we look forward to inviting you back to uh, to the East Coast every now and then, <clears throat> maybe on the Saluda River. <clears throat> That'd be good. Either that or down at Wells. Yeah. Which, which happens to be just 30 short minutes away from my home. So really, either location, <laughs> I feel really strongly about. Yeah. So I want to do more of the Beckerhead type thing because it's they're a phenomenal fun for community. Me. Yeah, they're fun for me. You know, I, I love people. And I like knife and gun people probably more than average. They tend to be more polite. That's because they carry guns. So what's coming up for Becker Knife and Tool? I mean, well, you've, you've been pretty much one or two new models every year. So so what's what's coming out of the Skunk Works? Well, right now, um, Kabar is not even remotely interested in doing anything in the immediate future. The reason for that is they are swamped. Every knife company that I have talked to has had about the best year that they've ever had this last year. And Tabor is in New York State. I don't know how many people work at the plant, but it's um, more than a few. They make a lot of knives. And if one person got sick, they were shut down for two weeks. Hard to make knives that way. Yeah. And the president of the company was in a, um, at Kbar. John, uh, I think John Johnson, president. He runs the place. That's all that counts. He was backpacking boxes. 
Yeah. Okay. That would give some perspective. Yeah. I mean, and Joe Bradley, who is their kind of sales manager kind of person now, and a wonderful human being, too, is, um, you know, he's working from home. But they've been short. They've been on short staff because of the Chinese long rot. And um, it's hard to build knives without people. Yeah, that seal doesn't grind itself, does it? None I've ever owned have. If you actually ever come across some that will grind itself, please let me know. I mean, I've thought at it really hard. I've let it know that I've been disappointed in its performance. Yeah, and it's giving you the finger every time. Yeah, it is. It's it's hard and cold. Uh, We do have a new folder, which should start shipping, I think, next month. One of the things that I am... There's a lot of things I like about that folder, but mm-hmm. the one that I love is that it is ambidextrous yeah. fully. The pocket clip can switch around. The thumb stud all is four, ambidextrous. All four corners. You can now make it. You can make it right-handed or correct-handed, either one you want. And you can make it upside down or right side up carry. And I was always enamored of the sodbuster as a kid. And this is my, that's where the imprint, it's a simple, fairly large blade. Size-wise, it's around a a buck 110, a little, about that size. It's much much thinner. It carries smaller than that, but the the blade reach. And it doesn't weigh 43 pounds like like a buck. It's not brass and mahogany or... Maple it does or, have, in fact, a three and a half inch blade, roughly. Yeah. So I happen to have one of the knives, and happen to have. A, there's a tape measure here. Terrible <clears throat> shame you lost that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and has an overall length of eight and a half inches, and the blade is um, one and a quarter by hey, three and a half. Hey, Kyle, we'll get some pictures for you. Excellent. Um, if you don't mind, either. no, Do you mind no. If we post some pictures. One of the problems, or excuse me, one of the things I'm not allowed to do is talk about long-term projects, mm-hmm. and the reason is is people I talk about them, and I like to talk about that. In case nobody could figure this out, I like to talk knives, and I like to talk my own knives too. And <clears throat> so I get really excited about future projects, and I. I let the cat out of the bag. Yeah, I've let the cat out of the bag. And finally, Stitt came to me and he said, Ethan, you've got to cut this out. And I said, why? And he said, well, we're the big company. So knives aren't shipping when you tell your, your friends and neighbors. Then they call here and it's our fault. <laughs> and he said, sometimes get pe- people get pretty abusive to the girls on, to girls that are in the in the." We're kind of tired of it being our fault when it's not our fault. (laughs) He said, you know them, and you don't want them to get abused, do you? And I said, no, I don't, because there's there's several very nice ladies that work there that I know. So it's been a long time since I was excited about a folder. I mean, I carried my Laol. There's a little bit of a backstory behind that. Yeah. There's some to what my father used to carry. Um, but you know, I, at 16, I had my buck 110 with a flicket on it. Oh, buddy. 
And other than that, and a sod buster, I've never really been terribly interested in a folding knife. I'm I am, looking forward to the ambidextrous features. I have always thought, as an adult, I have thought of folders as consumables. They're either consumable or they're they pocket get jewelry. lost. I mean, my problem is they get lost. Oh, yeah. Unless it's a cheap pocket knife. Cheap pocket knives never get lost. <laughs> Why is but, it a $40 knife I can keep up with, but the $120 knife keeps disappearing? Yes. I have a funny story about that. I, I finally decided to buy a, a good folder that 1995, maybe, something like that. That was what, your, I, your, your third grade year, Kyle? 95, I was a little bit older than that. Oh, okay. So I had a pretty good relationship with Kit Carson. Nice that, man. That's very a good relationship. Good, yeah, very good man. I mean, on a personal level. So he was making really nice folder, and I kept looking at it, kept looking at it. It was nice and simple. And simple. It's a lot of money, but it's Kit, and I will not lose a knife that's yeah. that damn expensive. You invest that much into it. you. you I will it. keep track of this one. Well, six months later, it was gone. It came up out of the driveway, out of the gravel, oh, the following spring. Like a gift. Yes. Like a lady of the stone. And it, it, it had buried itself where the UPS truck stopped. So it was not like day. new condition. Pretty close. Really? So I called Kit and I, I was, you know, I said, told him the story. He said, well, send it down here and I'll, 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 I'll polish back yeah, up. It's a replace. Right. Yeah. And I said, no, I said, I'm not going to do that. And he said, why not? And I said, I like the story the way it is. And it, you know, there wasn't anything functionally wrong with it. The, the clip broke. And he said, well, I'll send you a new clip. But he said, I want you to know something. He said, I didn't make the clip. <laughs> yeah, there's a chef buddy, chef buddy of mine down in Atlanta that's got one of the the first fixed blades I ever sold, and I have been trying to buy that back for about eight years now. It it disturbs me that that, that knife is out with my name on it, and he's like, "Nope." I'm like, "Come on, I, I'll give you a new one, better steel." He's like, "Nope, I've got this one. I'll always have this one." You're never going to get it back. Right. Yeah. So it's always good to have some leverage on day in anyway. Mm. Seriously, are, are you really expecting that I'm not going to do something even more stupid in the near future? I just keep a record. <laughs> um, so uh, the folding knife is new to the Becker lineup. Now right. that's coming up in the next year. All right. Now I, I want to say in advance. It's made in China. It is for decent quality. It's um, and it's about fifty three bucks. That's that's and, that's a sweet spot on price point. Well, there there are several reasons for this. It is very difficult. We got some prototypes spun by some people who I really love uh, in the states, and the people that buy my knives. Expect Becker knives to be good quality and good value for the money, 
And they also do not expect to spend $200 for a pocket knife, even if it is called a tactical or other folder. What's the difference between a pocket knife and a folder? Uh, 300 bucks. Yeah, somewhere around there. <laughs> so, and to me, I own some pretty expensive uh, folding knives these days, but I don't carry them because I don't want to have happen what happened with my Kit Carson knife. And we could not build this knife in the United States for anywhere near that money. There's a balance between availability. And I'll say something else. And this, this goes back to the maker part. If I design a knife, I want to get it made. I want to get it to market. I want people to... I, I, a drawing of a knife I, I won't want, do anything. I want, I want my ego boost from people buying them, okay? I mean, if you want a, the worst possible um, uh, interpretation on that. But I want to see it made, and I want to see it made in, within, the, within this century. Well, and made to your standards, but made to your standards at a price point that people, that people that, can get that, it. That the Becker, the Becker market, the Becker community, community um, is likely to buy. And I, I buy very few $200 pocket knots. And almost every one of them is sitting in a drawer I, and will stay there until my son sells them for 10 cents on the dollar after I've shuffled off. I need to get my name to your son. <laughs> <laughs> now, and, and we've talked about the, the Leola that I carry. That, yeah. That, that, that story's got many levels, but that's, that's the, I wouldn't feel comfortable carrying more than that. It's like wearing jewelry. Yeah. You know, it, and, and I you, mean, you make users, you don't yeah, want I make people users. to, I don't, to I, set I, it I'm in the safe. Yeah. And, I mean, right now, I've, I'm carrying three knives. I'm carrying my folder. I'm carrying a Swiss Army, the Swiss Army knife that I was talking about, because it has a nice long wood saw on it. And I'm carrying a Necker. And we're sitting in we're sitting in Dan's basement, but I am wearing pants. That's good. I want to be clear. He is also wear, fully clothed, wearing pants uh, yeah. and a shirt. I I worry about Dan not wearing pants on most of the podcasts. Uh, with good reason. <laughs> The number of times y'all have gone to the bathroom with me and not known it, hey, you know what? Don't think about it. I'm just saying mute button. All right. Or or has so, been edited so you don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> but back to your point that you make users. Yeah. And, and if you um, price yourself out of that, then nobody uses it. And nobody will buy it. And because the high end, uh, I mean, when you look at, at the quality of knives that are coming from Hogue in the $200, $250 category and some of the Spyderco offerings. I want you to have one in your pocket, one in your glove box, one in your bag. Yeah. I want you to go, hey, I need a knife and feel comfortable right. that one of my knives are going to be there. Yeah. So, and I own quite a few Hogue knives. Um I happen to like them, and the people that run that company are probably as good of people as you can find. So, and Jim Bruns is a quality freak. I don't think he'll mind me saying that. 
So along that uh, lines, where where do you think the industry is going and what's the, the next big kind of trend or thing that you can kind of think of in the knife business? I have no idea. Um, kitchen? Well, kitchen knives. I mean, kitchen knives, are. that's a very good point. Kitchen knives because, and part of it is people are spending a lot of time at home. <laughs> yep. And people are cooking more. Uh, by the way, all you need, um, and as far as cookbooks are concerned, is a joy of cooking. And, as and I have proven. We tell you how to build a, to build a fire. Well, I mean, every, every, everything you need to know. But anyway, that's, sorry about that plug. <clears throat> well, and I, but, I, but kitchen knives are definitely on the upswing. But I was thinking more of technology. I don't know if there are ever going to be any steels that are actually much better than what's on the market right now. I mean, there may be marginal differences as time goes on. I but, think we, we're back to a plateau level. I mean, you see you yeah. see a, a big jump, and then it'll plateau sometimes for hundreds of years. After, you know, after, after a crucible. That's a huge jump. That was, that was a quantum leap. And I don't, uh, and those particle steels are amazing and they are wonderful and they're very expensive. But handles, maybe some of the injection molding, some of the, the new processes to make stronger, more inexpensive materials. How much more strength do you need? How many guys? Than with- 66 nylon. What's How- a good, with a, Good glass fill. How many guys stood on a rocky overhang six months into a trap line and said, what more do I need than 1095? Exactly. And, but, and I'm probably, I love my Carta, mm-hmm. and we offer my Carta handles for Becker knives. It's been a gold standard for it's years. A gold for a standard because uh, it's one of the few handle materials that won't melt. And trying to burn a piece of that stuff is not easy. But I look at, at things like carbon fiber and G10, which are wonderful materials. But do you really need an, need an F-16 wing on, the, on your handle, on your blade? Do you need a Ferrari? Nobody uh, needs a Ferrari, but if you can I, get I know, one. But I'm, 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 that, that's what I said. Yeah. You don't need it. No. Are they cute? Are they cute to look at? Are they theoretic? I mean, but <clears throat> I've never needed a Ferrari. But theoretically, I picked up a lot more chicks driving a Ferrari than I did my Chevelle. I think we're going to end up with more decorative stuff. When you plat- plateau on the material science, then you start doing the aesthetics, right? And the aesthetics build for a while, and then you hit a new material science, right? And I think the biggest thing is going to be, and I see this happening in the not-too-distant future, is you'll be able to call a knife company, and I won't mention any names, and say, this is the knife I want. And between additive manufacturing and between uh, more and more inexpensive CNC, You'll get the blade shape that you sent in uh, hooked to the handle you wanted. 
you know, between 3D printing and CNC. Yeah, exactly. Additive manufacturing. So that's you. You will find totally customizable quote factory blades because there'll be the the mid-sized companies. Uh, somebody's going to take that concept and you know pick one from column A, one from column B, and how do you want the blade shape to be? And I think one of the things that's going to drive that is with this reassurance of a, a blade society that we're coming back to, with that education, you're now getting people that have developed the experience and the education to know, I need this thickness, I need this grind. Right. For what or I'm actually, do. let's be honest, I want this thickness. I want this grind. Right. I want this handle profile. Sure. And as we get a more educated consumer, then we're going to see that spill over from the outdoor community to the kitchen. And and so much of this, this education has come from various forums. Yeah. You know, I mean, my riff on the, on the Internet and the communities that it's been able to create, I'm the, the old guy's getting tired. It's now 12-something. Um, that's 11 something for you, Kyle. Yeah, more. So <laughs> I can read a clock. I'm not that bad, but I, I see, I see certain things. I don't see somebody may end up as a, for instance, figuring out a way to make titanium blades work better. I mean, the metallurgy may be there. That might be interesting. The machining is the question. You, you can make a, a 60, 40 right. titanium blade right now. But there's not a lot of people that want a thousand dollar chef's knife, or more. That doesn't balance well because it's too light. Yeah. So another challenge that'll be interesting is the machining side of things. Is that becomes, yeah, on one hand less expensive but more capable. Right. You will now get maybe the next peak as we get through the CPM right. plateau is the hyper exotics that can now yeah. be machined. Talonite makes a tremendous blade material. I'm sure it does. And if you've got 4,000 hours to machine it. <laughs> that's your problem. Not mine. Yeah. yeah. That's not a design problem. That's a production problem. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, uh, Camillus made it. Made them. And, uh, How many did they make? Um, they made, uh, they were actually the largest consumer of Talonite in the world. And I, I have absolutely several believe of, of Seminex blades. Did they make hundreds, thousands? Hundreds. Hundreds. And because they were, but at the time they were like 350 to $400. They weren't really. But, of course, the problem with, with talonite is, yes, it holds an edge 15 times as long as your better steel. I watched Wallace Fennel, field dress, skin, and cape, Six bears, one of the EDC pocket knives that they made. And I know the knife was still plenty sharp because Wallace wasn't whining. Um, I mean, that's, I mean, bears are, bears are not, not easy. I mean, that's, bears are tough on, the skin of a bear is tough on a blade. So he did six of them with a less than four inch blade. So the, the new things are going to be, what's the next jump in technology? 
what is going to make the hyper exotic steels affordable to machine? And then maybe as people get more educated in one field, that's going to bleed out to other edge tool, be it hatchets, be it kitchen knives, that, that knowledge of what makes a good right. blade is and going to start the guys, to spread. The, the custom guys who are doing the tactical hunting, all that stuff, those guys <clears throat> have been pushing the industry for the last 20 years. Before that, I mean, Camillus was making knives that had been in their catalog since 1895. Okay? Now, there wasn't anything wrong with those patterns. Case is still making stuff that was made in, 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 the, in the 19th century. But you can get complacent. You, you lose the drive to improve. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say when I first got into business, if one of the big knife companies came out with a new pattern, the other guys are going, <clears throat> I wonder if things are okay over there. <laughs> okay, honestly. I mean, yeah, why, like, why are the old patterns not selling? Why? Right, exactly. I mean, they must be having trouble. And now, if a company doesn't have new stuff, it's like, oh, they're screwed. <laughs> and I think some of that is part of for a while we saw a really marketing marketing driven aspect to the mm -hmm. the industry of give us something new we can sell right um, and i mean look in the old days pocket knives were average i mean pocket knives and by that i mean slip joints and occasional lockback of some sort that was for the old guy to peel the apple as he gave you sage advice at the corner of the feed store and uh, for the youngster, oh, good point. Okay, I remember staring for hours at the red velvet background and showcase at my the hardware store I could reach with my on my bicycle. On Saturdays, when things when things need to be done in the morning, Dad would take me to the hardware store and park me in front of the knife case. <laughs> And, and I would salivate over all the knives while he went out and, and got everything that we needed for chores right. that day and then would come back and pick me back up at the knife case and explain to me why I couldn't have that. Yes. But the marketing was different. There was no Internet sales. There was no – there, was there, no, there wasn't much in a way of catalog sales either. And it wasn't what's shiny new. It's what what has your what grandfather proven. Three-bladed stockman. Um, and yes, you can do everything you absolutely need to do with a three-bladed stockman. But on the other hand, you got stagnant. Um, you can't baton through a four-inch tree with it unless you just barely peck away at it very carefully. Unless you've got all day. Yeah, or maybe two days. Well, and it, it, it bred complacency for a while. It sure did. Um, if people want to find out more about the most interesting man alive, will you please cut that? It, it, it makes you, I can physically see you get uncomfortable, which really just encourages me. <laughs> we'll talk later. Um, so if so, people want to learn more about both Becker Knife and Tool and Ethan Becker, the man, where are some places? There's a bunch of YouTube videos out there. 
Uh, K-Bar has a couple of short bits, Joe Bradley interviewing me. But there's, I don't know how many YouTube things there are. I'm planning on doing a YouTube video or YouTube mm-hmm. channel to discuss the, the history and, and what I put into each and every single night that I've designed and why I did it. And maybe because I have had some modest success, it will help other people in the design process. It's, and we got to do that. I got to do that visually. We can't do that over the phone, so to speak. Well, and it, it's a cliche, but there's a lot of truth about standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, well, I certainly have. I mean, there are no. I, I had an idea. I, I can't even remember what what Blade was, and I thought, damn, that's a great idea you've had, Becker. I woke up in the middle of the night in a hotel room in Portland, Oregon, and got out of bed and got a piece of paper, piece of hotel stationery, and a pencil, and drew the knife out. I don't do that. I was excited. So I get home. I'm going through that, remember that huge glossary of arms, armor, and mm-hmm. cutlery thing? Yeah, I've got it right over there, the yes. gray one. Yeah. And I went, oh, <laughs> well, there's my knife. Um, oh, circa 400 B.C. Of course, I said to myself, did you unconsciously? Were you influenced by? I had, I had seen it at some previous date but and <clears throat> kind of regurgitated it. Or is it just a tru- truism? that there are not very many knife patterns, blade patterns, that haven't been done before. Now, there are a bunch of fantasy knives. There was a, uh, a very nice young man who brought a bunch of beautifully made uh, knives to practice what you preach one year. And they were blades that probably could not have been made before CNC. I kept looking at these things and thinking, okay, you're probably not going to be able to safely use. But by the time you cut, by the time you carve a toothpick, you'll have sliced off three of your four appendages. There's <clears throat> only so many ways you can do a working task. Yeah. When Joe and I designed the piranha, that was actually the fifth knife we designed together, because we would get the sketch finalized. All right, that's the one, and one of us would go, you know. That looks familiar. Hang on. And we do a Google search and go, damn it. Yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Because there's, there's only so many ways you can peel an apple. You know, I've every every blade I've done has been influenced by somebody else. The worm or an knife. Okay. Shape is not, is not the same. Not even remotely. But the concept is there. And it's a straight, it's a straight edged. Bowie, and I define Bowie, a Bowie knife, as any large American knife. Because there are just, I mean. That's all. That, that is an entire show in and of itself. Oh, buddy. That we plan on having. The, what who, was the original are, Bowie? How are you go, who are you going to get for a guess? Oh, who do you think? Zaleski? Of course. Of course. I okay. Mean, 
right. I just wanted to make sure that you were that you were firing on all. No, we we are we are in conversation to try to arrange it. But if you want to talk American buoys, he is the final source. He he and Bill Adams are the two, and and I I'd say Zaleski. Bill's the guy who knows more about the Solon or um, the uh, Sheffield boys than anybody else. Yeah. Um, also one of the smartest human beings I've ever met. And you could argue that's even really two separate shows, because I'd love to talk about the American Bowie and then the Sheffield Bowie coming right. in. And then, of course, there were a lot of Solingen Bowies. Yeah. I had a really nice one, Stag Handle um, Bowie from Solingen. It was, it was convex ground with a beautiful knife, and I had no idea why it was convex ground. I didn't know how to sharpen it, so I redid the edge. Oh, bless your beautiful, beautiful heart. I was 15 years old. Um, we, although my we, parents were not knife people, so, you know. Well, but we have gotten off the subject of how can people find you? Instagram, Facebook? I'm on Instagram occasionally. Um, I've had, my son's had some health issues the last year. And between that and the long rot, I've been, been kind of a, I've been kind of on hold for a year. I also had a lot of real estate worries. You've had a so, lot of opportunities to overcome this year. Yes, I have, and I have, and um, about to rejoin the community that I love. So, so Instagram is the intermediate. Facebook, I don't do Facebook. I never have. I'm, I'm, there's a Becker Knife and Tool Facebook page. Um, blade forums, blade forums. Um, I've been very inactive, and that's going to stop here directly because I miss the community. If you've got a question for uh, Ethan Becker, feel free to send that to Kyle at KH Daily Knives. Yeah. <laughs> I feel another edit coming on. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't be Dan if he didn't have 10 or 15 things to clean up. Oh, okay. I'm kind of surprised he hasn't popped a beer yet in the, the recording. You know, just out of respect for you, I, I pulled it away from the table before I my sweet baby Jesus. <laughs> yeah, nice. this has been this has been a sweet baby Jesus worthy uh, conversation. Nice. It, you know, it's Good been time. a while. Good time. Very cool. Well, do you have any any other things you want to plug real quick, Ethan? We're uh, we're getting pretty long, but well, I would say this that I have been involved in several different aspects of manufacturing and several different industries that I've been involved in over the years. And um, I like the knife business a hell of a lot more than I do any of the others. Uh, and partly because the people are, I mean, not that there aren't some um, miscreants, if you will. You uh, can say you know. Dan. We're, no, we all get no, no, I'm not talking about you. Um, but there are several miscreants. Uh, we have several miscreants. Are you talking about Murph or about who? Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> I know we're all kidding around here, but Murph is a solid pillar of a human being. I mean, 
talking about armor? Yeah, I mean, you want to hey, give me, you want to give me shit. <laughs> you want to shit? You go right ahead. But Murph is off, is off limits. I know, is, I know, I know. He listens, and he'll get a kick out of it. Murph, if you know he listens, and you said that, you need to lock your back door. Murph listens to this. Yeah. He's got oh. a really long drive. He doesn't have much else to do. He's he's listener number four of five. Yep. Um, looking forward to seeing you soon, Murph. <laughs> Murph's a good guy. Is Murph is a great guy. One of the best. Cool. So, um, oh, man, I got to put my glasses on now. Man, when did you make the print so small on the uh, the show notes? Same size as ever. All right, you no, can much smaller. You can keep in touch with the podcast at knifeperspective.com. You can uh, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh we're or I'm mostly active on Instagram on the Knife Perspective account. And you can listen to the podcast pretty much everywhere. iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, pretty much everywhere. And uh you can get in touch with Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com. And he's Dogwood Custom Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And Dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com is the email if you want to really aggravate him. You can get in touch with me, Kyle Daly, KH Daily Knives at khdailyknives.com. And I'm KH Daily Knives on Facebook and Instagram. And Kyle at KH Daily Knives or knifeperspective.com, respectively, for emails. So, really, a good, a good rule of thumb is if it's spelled correctly, you're talking to Kyle. Uh, if punctuation or spelling is questionable, it's me. Well, spelling could still be me, but uh, yeah. Not like Dan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, Ethan, it's been, been great talking with you. Thanks for sharing a bunch of uh, your knowledge and love hearing about some of the your many, 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 many years of experience. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, it's been a lot of fun. Um, mentioned earlier in the evening, this is a briar patch I like to be thrown into frequently. Nice. I love it. I mean, I, 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 I grew up loving knives. I, I still love knives. I'm still excited by something new I see. And at my age, excitement is um, pretty rare. Not safe for work. Bleep that. Can't use that will say that I think one of the reasons that across cultures, across demographics, that knives resonate with people, typically males, but people in general, is it is the first truly dangerous weapon that you're trusted with. And that no matter how your life changes after that, no matter what you go through, there's still that, that common note, that resonance that that takes you back to that first time that you were trusted with a dangerous implement. I remember the first time I was seven, six or seven, the first time I was allowed to shoot a gun. And that had more to do with what is laughingly referred to as Ethan's maturity <clears throat> than probably any other thing, because I knew I could not, screw this up I mean that was like and I want I knew I would want to do it again and I knew that if I 
screwed it up. Not only would somebody get hurt, maybe me, but that um, the chances of repeating the experience would be uh, somewhere um, in the way distant future. Something comparable to a snowball's chance in hell? That too. All right, Kyle. It's one o'clock in the morning, so you know what that means. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. And it's been a great podcast. We'll try to try to get you some more frequent ones now that the house move is all kind of settled a little bit. So yeah. Anytime you want me to talk knives or guns yeah, or camping or camp cooking or anything else, um, just let me know. Yep. We'll do. Say good night, Kyle. All right. Good night, Kyle. Good night, Kyle. Well, let's take it to the edge. Cause that's what's expected. In this discussion, this is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about our things now. That's what's expected. It's the night prospective. Three, two, one, go. Hey, guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here. I- Wait, are you that toy? <laughs> <laughs> they don't call me Toothpaste Dan for nothing. Uh, All right, one more time. <laughs> Three, two, one, go.